Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you. And if I have not met you before, my name is Chad. I'm the pastor of this congregation. I'd love to um, meet you after the service. Um, we do have um, our final round of baptism classes right after the service. And by the way, if you um, are still interested, this is your last opportunity in this half of the year. Um, we'll probably head downstairs around 11.30, so come and catch me before that time if you would like uh, to talk. We are now in week two of our 2020 vision series, and um, I keep on being reminded that people are still getting back to church, and this might be your first Sunday. So I want to speak to you about the slide that, that is up here, because I assured people last week that this was not a gimmick. I mean, 2020 vision kind of being a, a double entendre. And by the way, Chris Chen reminded me uh, by text last Sunday that not only were we doing our 2020 vision in the year 2020, but we actually started the vision on 0202 of 2020, which is also a chiastic palindrome with a symbolic double entendre with a, entendre with a twist. So anyway, that's, that's what this is, um, the series is called. But I want to go through some of the terms because a number of you asked me uh, or said to me last week, it was really good to have some of these terms cleared up because we hear people talk about vision and mission and strategy and all these things, but we get unclear about what the terms mean, but particularly what they mean from a biblical standpoint. So this is going to be a very quick five-minute review through last week. So next slide. Um, we are basing this series on WSCCC's vision statement, the whole church vision statement, which says we want to be a people of God growing in Christ and then reaching out with the gospel until he returns. And last week we focused on that until he returns bit because that's a future bit and that's what visions are all about. It's looking into the future and having a vision of the future that informs us and inspires us in the present. And then we went through some of the terms of this vision. So if we just go to the next bit, we said that a vision is an inspiring picture of the future that drives us in the here and now. And we used a number of passages from Revelation, which is a vision, um, like this one that says, and then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I saw a crowd of people from every nation, tribe, and language gathered around the throne and singing salvation songs to Jesus. And God has promised us, this is what's coming. And so when you get a bit confused and you get a bit despondent living in the world today, we have been given a vision of the future that says that's, this is not the way it's always going to be. Um, there is a better hope and a better future. So keep your eyes fixed on the vision in front and stay inspired. And then that moved us on to the idea of a mission. The difference between a vision and a mission is that a vision, you can just sit there and look at something and go, ah, oh, isn't that nice? But a mission is when you decide to do something about it. So I used this image because I told some of you that, you know, literally when I used to look at our big picture window in my family's um, house, I could stare out the, the window and see Pike's Peak, but I had never physically with my own feet climbed it. And one day I decided I was going to do the, you know, the Pike's Peak Marathon, and I actually set out you know, to, to climb it, and I had to train for it and all of those things. And I mentioned that it's easy to look at the vision out the window. It's a different thing to climb to the top of the peak. You have to train. You have to get the right resources, and you have to do a number of other things. 
So a mission is when we actually said, this is our assignment, and this is what we are going to do, which then leads us on to what Jesus called the Great Commission. So when we hear about a royal commission, it's an authorized mission. And the Great Commission is Jesus' authorized commission, his authorized mission, because he said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me by my heavenly Father, and now I'm giving you this mission. And he says, go make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you, and I will be with you as you do these things. Which then leads us on to the next stage, and it gets a little bit more practical. Um, we have said that we want to be a disciple-making church, which has this sort of cycle that goes to it. It means that we need to reach out to people with God's love and with the gospel. We need to draw people in and integrate them and help them to feel at home in this congregation. We need to build those people up so that they too can be disciple makers and they too will know how to evangelize and to reach out and this cycle goes on and on. But that takes us to the, the final step of this, which is a strategy. And a strategy means that you actually have to think, well, how are we going to do it? During the week, Paris and I were watching one of those stupid kind of reality shows, and they were doing an interview with this, this young woman, and she made the comment, I plan to do this city-to-city -city bike ride from Sydney to Wollongong. And the person interviewing said, oh, so, so where are you up to? You know, you, are you doing training? And she said, oh, I need to go out and buy my bike. And... And the guy said, oh, you mean you need have some special bike for this? And she goes, no, no, I haven't ridden a bike since I was a kid. I still don't know if I can even ride one. At some stage, I need to get a bike so I can do this ride. And you're thinking, okay, you haven't even registered. You don't have a bike. You don't know if you can ride. Like, you've got a vision. You know, you've, you've set a mission for yourself. But at some stage, you probably need to get down to the store, buy a bike, see if you can ride it, register. And a strategy means that there are there are things to do, and there's people's names next to it. How will we do it? Who will do it? In what timing? What will be the cost? What is the actual plan? Because without a plan, nothing gets done. So that's what we mean when we say vision and mission and strategy. And so our church leaders have been working on this strategic plan that involves a lot of details, but based on our vision and mission statement. So today, we're going to go on to the very um, next stage, and it actually takes us back to the beginning of our vision statement that says we want to be a people of God. And this is going to impact us in three ways. Those of you who like a nice three-point sermon, here's a good one for you. Um, being the people of God needs to inform our identity, and I'm going to talk to us very personally. Even though this is, this is for the whole congregation, at this stage, I want us to think about you. I need to think about me. Our identity in Christ. Then we're going to go to the next day of talking about our relationships. And I specifically want to talk about our relationships with one another as this particular church and this congregation. And then finally, it needs to inform our actions and our activities. And today I specifically want us to think about the ministries and the activities that we have outside of these walls. Um, our ministry to those outside of this church. So first of all, I want to talk about our identity. Um, oh, sorry, I didn't do the values, which is the, the, the love that, that we need to have all along the way. So we can go to the next slide again. Our identity, our identity in Christ. 
As a way of thinking about this, um, I pulled off this, you know, pulled out this old picture of the front of our building, I hope you noticed, and you might notice that the the sign that's out the front, which is getting a bit faded and, and we'll need to get a new one when we do our renovations, I've just plastered over the top of us. What if we, you know, when the renovations were all done, if we just put up a sign that said, the people of God. So when everyone walks past this building, what it says is, the people of God. Don't you think that that might make people go, oh, these people see themselves as the people of God. What do the people of God do? You know, what are they on about? That's a pretty extraordinary thing to say that you are God's people. So who are these people and what are they all about? Now imagine that when you actually come through the door, we all have sort of t-shirts or maybe we have name tags so that we're all wearing these shirts that say God's child, you know, the, the child of God. So when you are sitting there and talking to the person next to you, and they've got this name tag of this t-shirt on that says, I'm God's child, I'm God's you know, daughter, or God's son. Well, how does that impact the way that you relate to them? It, see, our identity then begins to make people wonder, what does this actually mean? And the point of this, of course, that we don't have the sign out the front, and we don't have the t-shirts, and we don't have the name tags, but we have a vision statement that says we desire to be known as the people of God. And so what does this mean? And we didn't just get this idea because a bunch of brainstormers sat around a table back in the 90s and said, oh, what should we say about ourselves? Oh, let's start with we'll be God's people. No, it comes straight from the Bible. And we could have picked a number of uh, verses for this, but we chose this one from today's Bible reading. You are God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And it goes on to say, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If we can just go on to our next slide. As you look at that verse, part of what it's meant to do is remind us of a couple of key moments in history. First of all, a lot of you have been here as we've done our series through Exodus and the other books of Moses. And we remember that for Israel, once upon a time, they were just a bunch of Hebrew slaves. They, they didn't know who they were. They had just been born into slavery in Egypt. They were basically treated like fodder to build Pharaoh's empire for him. And they weren't anyone in particular. And then God sent Moses along to remind them a long time ago, you may not know it, but I made a promise to your great-great-great-grandfather, Abraham, and I told him that I was going to bless you and make you into a great nation. I've come to deliver on that promise. And then from that point in time, Moses starts going on behalf of this group of Hebrew slaves and saying, let my people go so they can come out into the wilderness and worship me. These are my people that you are mistreating. Let them go. And God does all these extraordinary things to deliver them from Egypt, and he 
takes them out into the wilderness, and then he brings them before this holy mountain, and he says, because you are God's holy people, I want you to be holy because I am holy. Let me show you how to live as my people, and he does things like give them the Ten Commandments, and other instructions to tell them how to live as his people. And then he said, and now I'm going to not let you just be a bunch of, you know, wilderness wanderers. I'm going to bring you into your own nation, you know, into your own land. And there I will make you into a kingdom, and I will give you a king, and you will be known as, you know, my royal people, the, the people of God, God's holy nation, God's royal people. And so this group of random Hebrew slaves are being told, you who once weren't anything, you know, who were not a people, I am taking you and I'm calling you and now you are my people. And they become the center of the whole Old Testament. We were reading all about Israel and Israel exists in this world today because God did these extraordinary things and made these extraordinary promises. But it should also remind us of another thing, and those of you who are around when we did Ephesians, we also talked about this, that there were another group of people called the Gentiles, basically all of the nations who weren't Jews. And as people like Paul and Peter began to preach the gospel to them, they went, well, we're not God's chosen people. You know, that's the Israelites. And then Paul and Peter explained to them, well, that is true, except for that Jesus, who was born a child of Abraham, came to deliver on the promise that not only would Abraham be the father of his own great nation, but all people on earth would be blessed through him. And so Jesus came, and he died on the cross to save people from sin, and he rose from the dead and promised to pour out his spirit on all people so that anyone who believes in him would be called a child of God. And so Paul and Peter would say to these Gentiles, true, once you were not a people, you weren't the people of God. You, you were alienated from that promise, but now through Jesus, you have become a people, just like Israel. You are God's chosen people. And so, when we look at that vision statement and we say we desire to be the people of God, we need to remember this is not just our idea. This is all based on a promise. And I'm going to give you one little strategic action point um, for each and every one of these things today. So when we talk about our identity, here, here is your little take-home for today. If we just go to our next slide. I don't know about you, but um, there's been a lot written uh, these days about the, the huge problem we have with people feeling depressed and despondent, that great irony that technologically and electronically, we have never been more connected, and yet people feel more disconnected than ever before. And I want you to let, to let you know that as, as a pastor, as your pastor, I am not immune from this. I want to let you know that there are those days when I wake up in the morning, there are those nights when I go to bed and I say, who am I? What am I doing? I feel worthless. I'm not accomplishing anything. You know, I'm one of seven billion people in the world, and my life doesn't matter. I feel this thing, and I say these things to me. They become like my little mantra. And someone once reminded me, we've got to replace that. When the Bible talks about meditating on His Word day and night, it, it means we have to put a different mantra into our brains.
So your little take-home, and this is, again, very personally, because we're going to move on to the relationship part next, but when you wake up in the morning, and it's so easy to get up and go, what am I doing here? Off to another day at work, you know, another day at home with the kids, you know, another day at school, another day at university. Say this to yourself. I am chosen by God, and I'm precious to Him. Start your day with that each day. I am chosen by God, and I am precious to Him. And there's even more to it than that, that you've been given a task, that you've been given a mission, that you are royalty. And if you want to take it to the next level, pray it back to God. Don't just say, I am God's chosen. Say, God, thank you for choosing me. God, thank you for loving me. Because the mindset and the attitude that you take out the door with you every day will shape the things that you do. And you will go through the day differently when you remember that you are God's child and that you were chosen, that you were loved, and that he has a plan and a purpose for your life. You will just do the day differently. You'll do life differently. You won't be some random person running around out there doing a bunch of random things. Wherever he has put you and whatever he's put in front of you, you are there to accomplish God's purpose. So let this be your meditation and your mantra. Which takes on to our next slide. Being the people of God needs to impact our relationships. And all relationships, but now I want to talk about our relationships with one another. The relationships we have, for example, within this congregation. You see, when he says you are God's chosen people, it's not a singular you. It is a plural you, right? And we know this because it says, you know, you come to him, the living stone uh, chosen by God, and then he goes, and you are a chosen people. Not just you are a chosen person, but you're a chosen people. And therefore, we know that God hasn't just called a bunch of individuals. He's called a nation, a people. And so in verse 4, again, we're reminded, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. And then in verse 9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special and treasured possessions. So what does that have to do with our relationships with each other? Well, if God loves the person next to you and the person behind you and in front of you, well, then how are you to treat them? You treat them like your family, right? Because that is who God has made us. And again, we looked at some of these things when we've gone through some other books of the Bible, but if we can just go on to the next. In Ephesians, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. If you are God's child and if God is love, then you, as his child, need to walk in the way of love. And I've said this many times, love is a team sport. You can't play football on your own. You can't play basketball on your own. If you try, it's going to be a little bit frustrating. It's something that you do with other people. And love is something that we do with and among other people. If we go on to our next slide, we'll see that these verses go all the way through the Bible, and particularly the New Testament. In 
John's first letter, he wrote, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And this is based on the very words of Jesus from John 13. A new commandment, Jesus said, I give you love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another, and all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So if we look at each other, the person next to you on either side, the person in front, the person behind, and we can imagine that they've got that t-shirt on and that name tag that says God's beloved child, then how do you need to treat that person? And how should that person treat you? It makes us look at people differently. It, it makes us value them more. Um, it makes us more concerned about them. So one simple little strategic takeaway for today, and I'm gonna, about to give you two very shameless examples from my wife. And I, I'm going to use Parissa for these, even though she, I told her and she said, oh, do you have to do this? But I'm doing this um, for a couple of reasons. I want to talk about things that are, that are very practical, and I think that these are two areas where these is, this just plays into Parissa's spiritual gifts. But secondly... I want to talk about some things that we, that we don't necessarily see um, amongst uh, one another. I get a chance to have some insight into Parissa's life that I don't get to have in all of your lives. And I'm interested in the way that this plays out in ways that we may not even see happening here on a, on a Sunday morning. But one of the things that Parissa has done very well over the years is that she takes time to get to know people and to talk to people and to pray for people. So sometimes in the morning I'll get up and I'll go down and I'll put on the kettle to get the day started and everything, and I'll think, oh, where's Parissa? I know she's awake because I said good morning to her, but she's not here yet. And then after a long time she'll come down, and Parissa has set this goal for herself that she will not get out of bed because she's very task-oriented. She won't get out of bed until she's prayed for all of the people that she's promised to pray for during the week. And she'll come down after a while and she'll say, I'm really sorry it took a while, but I had a lot of people to pray for. And sometimes she'll just say, you know, after a while, I had so many people on the list, not just from this church, but from all over the place, that I just had to say, God, I'm going to name all of these people, and you know their needs, and you know I know their needs, and I just need to bring them before you, because I, I, I won't get out of bed if, if I just have to go and talk to you about each and every one. And I thought, how does she know to pray for these people? Well, it means at some stage after the service, she's walked up to someone and said, how are you going? What's happening in your life, and how can I pray for you? And when you say to Parissa, you can pray for me about this, she will pray for you. That's what she does. And I think that is so significant because it's so easy for us after a service just to go, church is done. Okay, so What's been happening with you this week? And you go, oh, you know, the kids, oh, work, oh, school. And we get into these really mundane conversations. And we could really begin to reshape the way that we think about ourselves and think about others if we just took it to the next level and we just said to someone, how are you going spiritually? How are you going in your walk with God? How can I pray for you in your walk with God? It might feel a little bit threatening the first time that you do it, 
but we need to think about people differently. These are not just a bunch of people who have to go off to work or who have to raise children or who have to go to school or university. These are God's children. And you are there to help encourage them and to support them on the way. Plus, when you are asked, you know, or you ask someone else, how are you going spiritually and how can I pray for you? You know what's very likely to happen. The person's going to turn around and say, oh, and what about you? How can I pray for you? What are your spiritual needs at the moment? And suddenly we find ourselves praying for one another in our walks with God that we will be good witnesses, that we'll be good parents to our children, that we'll be good you know, influences on our neighbors and our friends that we'll be able to use the gifts God has given us at work to be good testimonies to others. And not only are we reminded in our minds, but God says he answers prayers. And suddenly when we're all praying for each other, then a bit more spiritual activity is going to start happening. We're going to feel more empowered because we're actually talking to God about one another. So take time to talk to each other, ask each other spiritual questions, and pray for each other. And that leads us on to the last point. Um, Being God's people needs to shape our outside activities. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Notice to be a, a holy, a royal priesthood. Do you know what priests do? They become mediators between people and God. Now, we don't necessarily need any mediator between us and God. We have Jesus Christ. But as you go out into the world, we need people who say, I have a relationship with God. Can I talk to you about Him? I know God. Can I pray to God on your behalf? Because they may, might say, I have no idea who God actually is. Can we just go to our next slide? It says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Live good lives. You know, among the pagans might sound like a rude thing to say, but um, back in the day the New Testament was written, people would have actually identified themselves as people of one of the, the pagan religions, the religions of the people. Today, and I'll talk to you about this in a moment, Parissa knows a number of people who proudly identify themselves as pagans. They say we are part of a pagan people, we're part of a a pagan religion, because that's, that's their religion, that's what they're proud of. And so Peter's not being derogatory here, he's just saying as you live amongst secular people, live good lives. I went to a conference um, years ago where a guy got up and sort of controversially, a pastor got up and said, the first Reformation was all about creeds. During Martin Luther's time, when, when people had lost sight of the gospel and people were only following human traditions, and he said, we need to go back to some biblical doctrines. And so there was this grand Reformation that took people back to the Bible and, and back to looking at what the Bible had to say about who we are meant to be. And he said the first Reformation was about creeds, and he said the second Reformation needs to be about deeds. And he said, I'm not trying to say we get rid of the creeds, yep, keep the creeds going. He said, but what the church has lost sight of is that it matters how we live. And in a strange way, good deeds or good works has actually become a bad term 
Oh, no, no, we don't, we're not a people of deeds and works. We don't like that. Well, if you're talking about trying to earn your way to salvation through your deeds, of course, that's not a good thing. But our faith is clearly meant to influence the way that we act, and we know it because we're told by Peter, Paul's apostle, live good lives among the pagans. See, when I was growing up and I was in my young adult years, I would still talk to some of my friends, and they would say, what did you do on the weekend? I'd say, oh, I went to church, and they'd say, oh, I'm real, I'm backslidden. I really need to get back to church one day because we lived in a Christian culture and there was a sense that if you haven't been to church for a long time, you really need to get back. You're the bad person. Now I tell people that I am a pastor and I work in a church and everything, and they go, what? Who does that? Who goes to church these days? What do you do in a church? I know nothing about church. There is no sense out there that people are walking past this building thinking, I really need to get in there. It's just a building, and no one can see in, and no one knows what we do, and we're just some weird group of people who do some weird religious stuff, and they care about as much as what happens in here as they care about walking past the polo or the fencing club. It's just a bunch of people who are interested in some strange thing. Why should they care about what we do, who we are? Well, Peter helps answer that question. You see, when Jesus was on earth and he was doing his gospel teaching, he did things like go to the lepers. They were the coronavirus people of 2,000 years ago. They had this infectious skin disease, and they were treated like, stay away from me. And Jesus would go and place his hand on them, and he'd heal them. And then he would use that to say, once you are unclean, but I have made you clean. Once you were alienated from God and from people, but I have brought you into this family. And he would use that as an example. And he would bring someone back from the dead. And he'd say, this is not just a magic trick, but you were spiritually dead. And I've shown that I can give you new life. And there would be people who were hungry, who hadn't eaten for days, and he would give them bread to eat. But he'd say, now you need to understand that I am the bread of life. You eat this bread and you will still die. You eat this bread and you will live forever. And people were drawn to him because they saw the things that he was doing. And then they realized that the good things that he was doing pointed to even a greater reality. And too many churches have gotten used to coming into the building and saying their creeds and singing their songs and then going out and never mentioning it or saying a word about it again. And if we are not having interaction with people, if they can't see what we're on about, if they can't see our good deeds, if they can't see that the Bible makes a difference in our lives, why would they care? You know, let your light shine amongst all people. And with that, I'm going to just share my final Parissa story because this is something that I think that she does better than anyone that I've ever met. Parissa has all of these friends, not only who are Christians or who have fallen away from church, but who call themselves agnostics, who call themselves atheists, who call themselves pagans, who call themselves witches, who call themselves all kinds of different things, but they like Parissa. And they say, we know you're a Christian, we don't quite get it, but you seem to be one of those nice ones. You seem to talk to us, you seem to care about us, you seem to love us. And Parissa just always says that's because God loved the world and sent his only son into the world because he loves you and he wants a relationship with you. And just a week ago, and that's why I'm sharing this as a final analogy, um, Parissa came home and she was actually a little bit distraught because she had 
run into a couple of neighbors up the street, and they were saying, oh, it's a coincidence we've just bumped into you, because they had just had another conversation with someone else in the community who does not like Parissa. And even though she'd recently run into this woman in a shop, and they'd had a cordial conversation, and it seemed all right, we're well aware that behind the scenes, she just badmouths her and says very bad things about her, and she just, just doesn't like her. So she ran into these two other neighbors, and they said, oh, we were just sharing how we were in town, and we heard this woman bad-mouthing you and everything, and then we were just saying to each other, how can anyone say anything bad about Parissa? You were nice to everyone. All we ever see is you walking up and down the street and hugging people and loving people and being kind to people. And if there's anyone in this town that people should like and not talk badly about, it's you. I mean, if you're a bad person, then we're all bad. Because all we ever see you doing is walking up and down the street and smiling and hugging and loving and caring for people. One of these people has nothing to do with God and is as far away from church as possible. The other one, just in the last three weeks, made the statement, I hate God. But she loves Parissa, and she's very intrigued about who she is. And if we can't live the sort of lives as God's people that is attractive, then we've missed out on this. Live such good life among the pagans that even if they accuse you of doing wrong, your own life, you know, the fact that you're following God, that will speak for itself in the end. I'm going to, um, to finish there, and we're going to have a chance to um, hear a little bit more about this strategic plan, but we're going to sing our song of response. <laughs>